12-year outcomes following gastric bypass surgery. Preventing infections after C-sections. What's the risk of death if you're a triathlete? And physician-assisted suicide. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on September 22, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I would like to turn first to annals of internal medicine. I was a little bit shocked by this one. Gosh, for years we've been telling people, if you're a triathlete, don't worry, this intense exercise, it's probably not an issue, you're going to be just fine, and this study refutes that. As you're aware, triathlon events have really increased in frequency and we have a lot more participants. Currently, there are more than 3,200 sanctioned adult events and they involve almost a half a million participants. So what these authors did is they looked at all the participants in U.S. triathlon races from 1985 to 2016. That's almost 9 million individuals. And they discovered that there were 135 sudden deaths, resuscitated cardiac arrest, or trauma-related deaths. And then they dug a little bit deeper between the swimming and the bicycling and the running. Most of the sudden deaths actually occurred during the swimming event. If it was a trauma-related death, that was more likely to occur with bicycling. When they dug even deeper, there were more likely to be men who died than women, about three times higher incidence. And for men over the age of 60, the incidence went up significantly, about ninefold. There were a few of these individuals that had autopsies, and when they did, they discovered about half of them had previously unknown cardiovascular abnormalities, either coronary artery disease or less frequently a cardiomyopathy. I find this to be really, really interesting. I guess when I've seen triathlons, the swimming always comes first. And I would have speculated a priori that it would have been that duration of exercise that would have rendered the risk. What is it specifically about swimming? Do we have any idea that results in this increased risk of death? Well, Elizabeth, let me go back to your first comment. And when they looked at the different triathlons, because some are short and some are medium and some are long in terms of the duration, the risk of death really was unrelated to the length of the triathlon. Now, with regard to swimming, it may be that it's, since it's the first event, and that's when the catecholamines, the epinephrine, is particularly high. Secondly is, of the three events, that's the one that people are oftentimes less frequently familiar with or less adept at. And furthermore, if someone has trouble in the water, it's less likely that they're going to be able to be successfully identified and then resuscitated. I find this to be just a very revelatory study, although it's unclear to me what the conclusion is. Does this say, hey, if you're a guy over 60, maybe you ought to have a cardiovascular assessment before you participate in a triathlon? Well, it tells me that if someone has symptoms that even hint of cardiovascular disease, they need to be evaluated. But if you take it back to the triathlon, you might say, well, maybe there are things we can do during this swimming event. For example, oftentimes they have mass starts where you have 1,000 or 2,000 people starting off at the same time where someone's actually more likely to drown. Secondly is maybe swimmers should wear very brightly colored caps so we can identify where they're at and make sure that there are a sufficient number of event organizers that are present to attend to anybody that has difficulties. Okay. But certainly we want to encourage exercise, and I think both of us are rather in awe of people who do triathlons, at least I am. Since we're in annals, let's turn to a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, at least in the chaplain role, and that's the idea that, wow, should physicians be involved in assisted suicide? This, of course, is a position statement as well as a study that comes out against that practice. So usually we don't talk about positions. 
we try to focus on studies that have been released, obviously, the week that we're recording. And for our new listeners, they may not realize that you and I don't talk about this beforehand. We just identify the studies and we have a conversation. But this particular position paper actually is accompanied by data from Oregon that for over 20 years has had what's called the Death with Dignity Act. And that's to allow physician-assisted suicide. So let me focus on that first to tell you what the characteristics are. And then we'll talk about the ACP, the American College of Physicians statement. Oregon is one of six states that allows physician-assisted suicide. And when they look at their data for over 20 years, there's a small number of Oregonians that have actually participated, less than 2,000. And interestingly enough, what they do is they allow the physician to prescribe medications for people that request them after certain screening. Of the people that requested the medications, a third of them decide not to take it. But those that do, the number of deaths related to this was less than 19 per 100,000 deaths recorded in Oregon, and less than 1% of physicians participated. There's some concern that these may be individuals that are poorly educated. What it showed was that certainly more recently, three-fourths of the individuals who participate have a higher education degree. And when they ask them why they did it, most of the individuals that participated either had cancer or a severe neurologic problem like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And what they were most concerned about wasn't intractable pain, but the loss of autonomy and the loss of being able to control their own death. Now, the American College of Physicians has come out against physician-assisted suicide. There are two great editorials, and I hope you post this article, one that speaks for it and one that speaks against it. As I already mentioned, in the chaplain role, I have exposure to people who might want to make these kinds of options, and I think it's important to be able to provide those. It shouldn't be someone who's depressed or isn't fully apprised of all of the options that are available to them. But if they have intractable pain or that complete loss of autonomy that we do see with ALS and other conditions, I think it should be an option. And frankly, I find it a little concerning that the ACP has devolved that to, well, let's bring in our palliative care colleagues and have them make sure they manage all the symptomatology as best as it can be. Sometimes, even with the best management, things are still pretty troubling. Clearly, the American College of Physicians talks about facilitating end-of-life care, making it as meaningful and comfortable to the patient and the family as well. You hit on a topic that talks about autonomy. But as physicians, oftentimes we don't do that. For example, if they request unnecessary tests, we don't allow them to do that, even though they ask for that. And if they want to do frivolous end-of-life things that aren't going to be helpful, prolonging a terminal illness, taking out cancer when we know it's metastatic, we know it doesn't prolong their survival, we won't do that either. And on the one hand, that infringes on the patient's autonomy, but it allows us as physicians to do what we think is morally correct. I think there's good arguments on either side of this. Readers really should avail themselves of the blog this week to read about this. That is, of course, the one I'm going to write about. And while I'm giving the public health message, though, I would say everyone should have advanced directives. And in an attempt to try to get their arms around, these are my preferences, and I want to make sure that they're known. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really important. Let's go from here to the New England Journal of Medicine. This ongoing topic, gosh, we've been talking about this. We've been podcasting 13 years. This is 12 years of follow-up from gastric bypass surgery. What do we find out? This particular study, they reported on results after two years and kind of medium term after six years, but now we have 12-year results of almost 1,200 patients with severe obesity that were randomized to receive gastric bypass surgery. There was a group of individuals that were randomized and actually received it. There was a group of individuals who were randomized and did not receive it because of the insurance company denied them that option. Finally, there was a third group of people that were just observed. In those that received gastric bypass surgery, 
at the end of two years, they lost about 100 pounds. They maintained that weight loss. It wasn't exactly 100 pounds, it was closer to about 80 pounds after 12 years. Secondly, it reduced the incidence of developing diabetes by about 93% compared to the other two groups. And furthermore, there were some people that had type 2 diabetes at the time of gastric bypass surgery. About three-fourths of them, it remitted, and in most of those individuals, they continued to be free of diabetes mellitus. And of course, I would also add parenthetically that it's become significantly safer over that 12-year period too. So this all would seem to sum up in advocacy for undergoing this procedure if one is morbidly obese. But I guess I would also have to add that we're seeing the development of a lot of other devices and strategies that are not quite as draconian as this particular operation to achieve this result. And I at least am hopeful that those are going to end up, first of all, prevention, but then beyond prevention that some of these other strategies could turn out to be practical. Elizabeth, I hope the same thing. In these newer procedures, we'll need these long-term follow-ups to verify that they also have a robust long-term effect. Finally, let's turn to the Journal of the American Medical Association since we're talking about obesity. When women are obese and they have C-sections, what about the use of antibiotics in them following the procedure? I was unaware that there are about 1.3 million infants born in the United States about a third of all U.S. births that occur via C-section. Now, as with any surgical procedure, there's always the risk of infection. And with C-section, that risk of infection increases in obesity. And now about a third of women who deliver actually are obese, a BMI of over 30. In obese women, as many as one in eight may suffer from an infection. So the question is, if we gave antibiotics kind of a short course afterwards, could we further lower that risk? And that's what these investigators studied. They looked at using oral oral cephalexin and metronidazole for 48 hours versus placebo in obese women that had a C-section. It reduced it by about 60%. The risk of infection seems to be higher in women who have already ruptured their membranes prior to their C-section. And that's where the reduction was the greatest. What's the downside of administering the antibiotics? Well, Elizabeth, there were no adverse effects. Does it somehow affect the infant? And the authors suggest, in their opinion, that the benefit of giving these may outweigh any small risk. But my comment would be is we need a larger study to determine that. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well.